Mark chapter 10. We'll begin with verse 17, just to kind of give us a running start. Two contextual details that are important to keep in mind as we're progressing verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the gospel of Mark. First, at this point in Jesus' ministry, his Galilean ministry has come to a close. Jesus is on a direct and deliberate journey to Jerusalem with the disciples to celebrate the feast of Passover. It will be during this week that Jesus will drive out the money changers from the temple. It will be during this week that Jesus in the upper room changes, reinstitutes the entire imagery of Passover by saying that this is my body and this is the cup that represents my, my blood. And it's an amazing scene. Jesus will make his way to Gethsemane where he'll pray and he'll be arrested and that night be tried before being executed. It'll also be at the tail end of this trip, that Jesus will be resurrected and that he'll appear. It is an amazing week that Jesus is on a direct and deliberate journey towards. It's good to keep it in mind. Secondly, Jesus has just made, for lack of a better way of setting it up, a revolutionary statement. In the verses that we looked at last week, Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Jesus is telling the disciples, he's telling the multitudes that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to go to heaven, then the key is that you must receive it as a little child. And Jesus really sets up a comparison between receiving the kingdom, justification by faith, salvation, redemption, versus earning the kingdom, religion, works-based salvation. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, receiving it as a little child, will by no means enter it. And this teaching, as we're working our way through the gospel of Mark, it sets the stage for the story we'll be looking at this morning because we'll find a young man who misses the lesson and in contrast to the lesson is desperately doing his best to earn the kingdom. Verse 17, Mark chapter 10. Now, as Jesus, and we know the disciples, the 12, as they're going out on the road, making their way to Jerusalem, we're told that one came running and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? Now, traditionally, we know this man as the rich young ruler. Three words, three adjectives used to describe this man, although I believe there are many more that we should include. First, we know this man is rich from our passage. A few verses moving forward, Mark will tell us that he had many possessions. He was rich. Matthew chapter 19 will tell us that the man was young, literally that he was a male youth, a young man. We know that he was a ruler. Luke 18 tells us now a certain ruler came to Jesus. It's interesting to note there are many different theories as to what it means by the statement that he's a ruler. I tend to agree with kind of, I think, probably the scholarly opinion, the preeminent opinion, that by stating that this man was a ruler, that he was more than likely kind of a junior member of the Sanhedrin, which was a group of 70 
uh, Jews that made up a ruling body there in Jerusalem. So this man is rich. He has many possessions. He's wealthy. He's affluent. He's young. He's not dealing with the 30-year-old belly. He doesn't need to hit the gym. He's a strapping young man. Chiseled jaw. He's not dealing with the double chin yet. He's got his youth. He's fresh. And he's a ruler. Which means he has power. He has authority. He has influence. This man has everything our culture embraces, pursues, and states as success. The man has money, wealth. He has it. He doesn't have to worry about paying the mortgage. He doesn't have to worry about uh, keeping the lights on. The man has affluence. And he has power. He has influence. He's a ruler. So he has wealth and he has power. He has money and he can tell people what to do. And he has youth, which makes this a very rare trifactor. You know, a lot of people will achieve wealth. But they'll achieve it later in life. They'll work hard by the sweat of their brow. They'll earn their living. They'll work up the food chain. And it's later in life that they'll finally achieve kind of their dream. That they can buy the beach house. That they can upgrade the Toyota to the Lexus. You know, that they're finally able later in life to buy the things that they had always dreamed of owning as a young man. So sometimes we achieve wealth, but we're old. So we can't really enjoy it as much, which is kind of dirty, right? I mean, what a bummer. I can finally buy the thing that I wanted, the electric guitar of my dreams, but I'm dealing with such bad arthritis in my fingers that I can't even play it. I can finally buy that motorcycle, but... My knees hurt. My back aches. I get cold too easily. Like it's, it's, a, it's a dirty trick that life plays. We finally get the wealth, but because we don't have the youth, we can't enjoy it. Same with power. I mean, most of the time, for a person to achieve power or standing position, they also have to age. They have to achieve things Often with power comes older age. This man has a unique blend. He's rich, he's powerful, and he's young, which means he can enjoy it. But we should also note that he's moral. Every account affirms the rich young ruler's high moral and religious prowess. This man had a wonderful reputation. I mean, so not only is he, is he well-to-do, and he's young, and he's got power and influence, but he's liked, and he's respected, and people are telling their kids that that's a good role model. Like, when you grow up, you should be like that guy. People look to him, and they want to be like him, and they respect him, and he's got a great reputation in the community, and he's kind, and he's religious, and he's an upstanding gentleman. But, in addition to being rich and young and being a ruler and moral, we also should note that he's empty. Though this man has everything, 
Everything we often in our society pursue for fulfillment, money, power, youth, religion, this man had them all and still was empty. The man sensed within himself that though he had all of these things, he was lacking something. Now, he probably couldn't define it. He probably was unsure exactly what it was or what it looked like, but he knew that deep within his soul, something was missing, something was lacking. He was incomplete, which is why he comes to Jesus and he asks this question. And it's a good question in some ways. He says, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Which tells me this about the man. He knew that his riches didn't matter when it came to eternal life. That his youth didn't matter. That his influence didn't matter. That his religion didn't matter. The man comes asking the question, I have all of these things, but I'm coming to you because with all of these things, I know that I don't have what I'm looking for. So what do I need to do? Because I know if I were to die today, then I'm going to miss the thing that I want most. And that's eternal life. What must I do? He knew he didn't have it. And we should also mention that the man was desperate. His actions here went against every cultural norm for a man of his stature. We're told that he came running and he knelt before Jesus. Now, Jesus and the disciples, they're making their way, probably at this point, from the Jordan River, down close to the Dead Sea, up through the Judean wilderness, on their way up to Jerusalem. It's a tight road. It's a narrow pass. And there's a multitude, not just Jesus and the 12, but there's a whole migration, a pilgrimage of the Jews that were in Galilee coming to Jerusalem for Passover, On the low end, a couple hundred thousand. On the high end, up to three million. A lot of people are making their way. It's public. People are around Jesus. There is an excitement. And this man comes running and he falls before Jesus. Now he's powerful and he's a ruler, which means that, that there was a bit of pomp and circumstance that came with such a position. Middle Eastern culture. Get it in your mind an oil sheik with the headdress and the long flowing robes. And and for a man of that kind of attire and position to come running meant that he would have to hike up his garments, you know, to have some flexibility, which means that his legs, those white paisley legs that have never seen sun are, are radiating, they're shining and he's running and he's coming and people are looking and he's sweating. The, the whole atmosphere, this is not what a man of his position, of his reputation, of his authority would ever be seen doing. And he comes to Jesus and he falls down, which indicates so much of his heart that I admire. You know, we only have one other instance of a member of the Sanhedrin, of the ruling of the ruling class coming to Jesus. And he was a man by the name of Nicodemus. And in John's account of the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus, he, he does come out of, out of a place of emptiness. He also was wealthy. He, he had a lot of similarities, but we're told that he came under the cover of darkness, that he came at night to Jesus when he was in private, where no one else would see. You have to give the rich young ruler credit because he came to Jesus in a very public way. 
in front of everyone. And he kneels down, but he's also perceptive. The rich young ruler gets a lot of flack, deservedly, and we'll see it in a bit, but he should be credited. He has this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And and he comes to who? To get an answer. He comes to Jesus. He understood, and it's unique. I think it's, it's, it's deserved to be pointed out that he has this question concerning action, eternal life. I need, I need the answer to this. And so who does he come to? He comes to Jesus. Why? Because the man perceived, he recognized that Jesus had the end when it came to heaven, that Jesus had the inroad when it came to eternal life. If I need an answer to that question, it's a big question. It's an important question. He understood that I need the answer, so I'm coming to Jesus. And he makes this statement. He says, good teacher. Now understand, this is a unique, unique phrase. To the point that the man comes, he falls down, he kneels before Jesus, he utters these two words, and there was probably a gasp that echoed out throughout the crowd. Why? This word good is the Greek adjective agathos. And it means to be of a good constitution or nature. Now, now what this means is that the word, it indicates that Jesus just didn't do good things, that Jesus did good, that he was a good teacher by what he did. No, the word implies that Jesus was good, which means that by saying good teacher, your nature, what makes you who you, are, who you are, teacher, is good. The man is affirming, or at least indicating, a sinlessness, a perfection within Jesus, not just seen by what he did, but by who he actually was. The man understood, I need to come to Jesus if I really want this question answered. But we should mention that the man was misguided. His question, what shall I do? The man, he assumed that the key to eternal life was personal goodness and total adherence to the law. Jesus, I want to know what I must do. Now, he missed Jesus's earlier message, didn't he? Where Jesus makes it clear that it's not what we do to earn the kingdom, but instead our attitude in receiving the kingdom. Now here's the heart of his question. And you gotta understand how this all connects. The man recognized that Jesus was the essence of human morality. He affirms this by the statement, good teacher. Jesus, you are good. You are perfect. I look at you. I've observed you from a distance. I recognize your life. I find no fault. I find no error. I find no sin. I can only affirm within you perfection, which I find is interesting because this would be a man that would later sentence Jesus to death. And yet here we find him affirming the sinlessness and and, and the, the innocence of Jesus. But since Jesus was the essence of human morality, the man, he comes to Jesus, why? He wants Jesus to provide him the key to achieving moral perfection. It's as though he comes to Jesus, he says, Jesus, you've arrived. Like I admire you, like you're good. 
no blame, no fault. Man, you do good things. You're perfect. So you just tell me, like I'm doing pretty good on my own. Like I got my ducks in a row, my house in order. I still feel I'm not there, but you're there. So just tell me what you're doing that I need to do so that I can as well have the inroad on eternal life. How can I become what you are? Ironically, what must I do is never a question that children ask. They don't. So Jesus, he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Now, admittedly, this is kind of a bizarre place for Jesus to begin in addressing the rich young ruler. As a matter of fact, there, there have been some that have kind of twisted and warped what Jesus is saying here to somehow be uh, evidence that Jesus really wasn't God, that Jesus didn't see himself as God. And, and I think that that is an error in understanding. Was Jesus den denying his divinity? I don't think so. I think instead of denying his divinity, Jesus is actually doing something more tactful. He's challenging the man's theology. And let me explain his theology. First, the man viewed that eternal life was something that could be achieved or earned. He was religious, he was Jewish, he grew up with the mindset of a works-based salvation. This is his entire mindset, that salvation, that eternal life can be achieved or earned. And how is it achieved or earned? Through my personal goodness. That, that is the way that I make it to heaven. That is the way that I earn God's favor, by doing good things. The better I can do, the more God will look favorably upon me. And then finally, since the man believed Jesus was good, he wanted to know how Jesus had achieved this obvious perfection. So his theology, eternal life could be earned. It can be earned by my goodness. Jesus is good, so I want to know how he's doing it. Now the logic behind Jesus' answer. Let's look at this very systematically. First, Jesus makes it clear, right, that only God is by nature good. You see that, that's pretty self-explanatory. But then Jesus, secondly, he kind of makes this point. Since he was good, the man had already affirmed this. He'd called him good teacher. So since Jesus was good, but only God is good by nature, Jesus must be whom? God. And why is that important? Well, thirdly, since Jesus was God, he was only good because of what? Because of his good nature. Only God is by nature good. Since Jesus was good, he must be God. And since Jesus is God, he's good, not by what he's doing, but by what? But by who he is. Think of it this way. Jesus' good naturally manifested itself through good deeds. But here's the deal implying that good deeds had a role in the formation of Jesus's goodness was off base. Jesus was good, so he did good things. Jesus doing good things was not the way that you could conclude he was good. Now, this undermined the entire argument, the entire premise, the entire bedrock of the rich young ruler's argument of his theology. 
first. Think of it. Since Jesus was perfect, the man had assumed that perfection was achievable. Saw it in Jesus, thought I can do that. The problem, Jesus's goodness was not a byproduct of what he did, but who he was. It's a big problem. Secondly, if the only way a man could be good, like Jesus, was to be God, like Jesus, then this man had no chance. A mere man can never be good enough to circumvent his sinful nature. Now, Jesus is going, after, after tearing down his theology, he's going to illustrate this reality by taking the man back to the law. He continues, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And this man, he answered and he said, teacher, <laughs> interesting, he doesn't say good teacher at this point, right? He says, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now you should note that the law, the 10 commandments, you know, all the law was summarized in 10 commandments, kind of like the table of contents for the law. And of the table of contents of these 10 commandments, they were divided into two basic sections. The first four commandments dealt with the vertical interaction that humanity had with God. Vertical interaction. You shall not have any other gods before me, man and God. You shall not have a carved image or an idol. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All these are dealing with man and God, a vertical interaction. The last six, the second half, they dealt with a horizontal interaction with each other. So first man and God, and then now man and each other. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet. Now Jesus would take this even a step further. In Matthew chapter 22, by taking the 10, he's asked by the Pharisees, well, what's the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus answers. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But there's another really good commandment you should take note of. And Jesus says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, all of the law and the prophets hang. So Jesus takes these two commandments, he takes these 10 and whittles them to two. First half, your vertical interactions with God. The second half, your horizontal interactions with man. And Jesus says, it can all be summarized with two. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can do this, then you've achieved the essence of the law. Now, Jesus asks the rich young ruler if he's familiar with these commands, doesn't he? Do you know these commands? But the man answers, teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Now, there are two obvious problems with his answer. First, his answer has nothing to do with Jesus's question, does it? Did Jesus ask him if he had obeyed these laws? Nope. Jesus only asked him if he's familiar with them. He's bringing his attention towards them. The man's answer, I've kept them all. And Jesus, I can see him thinking, I didn't ask that. I just wanted to know if you were familiar. I know what your answer would have been. But more importantly, the rich young ruler's answer, it revealed a greater problem. It revealed a limited understanding of the law. This man was the ultimate moralist. He was religious. 
But moralists are often able to reach a false sense of moral standing by focusing almost exclusively, and this was a big problem within Judaism, by focusing almost exclusively on the specifics of a command while overlooking the heart behind the command. You see, the Pharisees had built this whole structure by which they would obey the letter of the law, they would overlook the heart behind the law, but they still concluded that they were moral. It should also be noted that moralists reach a false sense of morality through self-comparison. I'm gonna leave that thought to a B-side. But here's the deal. God, and Jesus has made this clear on multiple occasions, that God is just as interested in the manifestation of a person's actions as he is the position of a heart towards the manifestation of the action. Basically, that God, God cares if you're obedient. Like, like God cares, don't misunderstand. God wants you to obey the law in the sense that obey the commands. These are given for our benefit, for, for, for our protection, obey them. May there be an outward manifestation. However, Jesus makes it clear over and over and over again that in addition to the outward action, that Jesus is also interested in our heart. Our heart. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, he says, you heard it said to you, you shall not murder. Then he says, but I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. You heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus says, you've heard it said, and you have these laws. But I tell you, it's not just the law. It's the heart behind the law. And there's many examples of the reality that God looks at the heart just as much as the act. Can be summarized in one command, truthfully. You shall not covet. Coveting really has no outward manifestation. Coveting is entirely a law of what? Of the heart and the mind, of how I view other things and what I desire. Here's the reality. Since obeying the letter of the law doesn't always ensure you're obeying the spirit behind the letter of the law, outward obedience, it's not always an indicator of an inward perfection. Just because you obey the letter of the law doesn't mean you're obeying the heart. Okay, rich young ruler, I list off some commands. You say, I've obeyed these for my youth. Well, you would never say that if you really understood the heart behind it. So you're gonna say that you've never been angry? You're gonna say that you've never lusted? That's haughtiness, it's self-righteousness. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now pause for a moment. We could only get this detail from an eyewitness account. I mean, really. And I love to get back into maybe the scene and to picture what Jesus must have looked like in order for Peter, who relays his account to Mark, for what Peter must have observed. Because it stood out in Peter's mind in recalling the story that when Jesus, when he turned to the man, when he went to address the man, that he, he looked at him. And I'm just going to tell you that the way that he looked at the man was so infused with love that I'll never forget it. 
that he loved the man. And then he said to him, okay, this is the game we want to play. There's one thing you lack. Or literally, there's in one way you fall short. This would what this phrase indicates. One thing you lack, or there's one way you fall short. Fall short of what? Fall short of perfection. So Jesus tells him, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. But the man was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Go your way, sell what you have and give it to the poor. Now, please note that it's very easy for us to look at this and think, well, isn't this kind of a direct contradiction of what Jesus has just been saying? Because Jesus has said the key to the kingdom is receiving, right? It's not what I do. It's not earning. But then this man's coming wanting to know what must I do? And Jesus tells him, this is what you do. Take what you have, sell it, give it to the poor, follow me. And over the centuries, there have been some that have taken this to be a universal truth, that that this is what we should do. As a matter of fact, we'll see that the disciples and the story moving forward, they kind of reach the same conclusion because in their pride, they're like, well, guess what, Jesus? We have given away everything that we had. We gave it to the poor, we're following you. So, So what's happening here? Understand, Jesus is not asking the man to do something as much as he's asking the man to let go of something. It's not do something, rather it's let go of something. Because here's the deal. I have found that in order to receive, we must first have empty hands. You know, it's hard to receive something when your hands are full. I found that this is the case with Quincy. Quincy will have his food, he'll see your food and he wants it too. And so he comes and he's got one handful of mashed potatoes and one handful of meat and he comes running over. He's like, I want that. You know, with this and stuff's everywhere. My dog's trailing to try to get as much food as she can. Like, I have all of this, but I want that too. Give it to me. And it's like, well, dude, like you gotta go put that stuff back on your plate. Like you don't have a third hand. Like there's no way this is gonna work. Like, it's true that if we come to receive, we have to have empty hands. You see what I'm saying? And so what is Jesus doing? Jesus, it's still the truth. It's about receiving. But this man had come with full hands. And Jesus is encouraging him. You've got to let go of something in order for you to truly receive the request. And more importantly, as we'll see the man's inability to obey, it was designed to reveal to this rich young ruler that he was not nearly as moral as he believed he was. Now let's get back to the original question to break this down. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, he gives two commands. These commands reveal the position of the man's heart. First, sell whatever you have, sell it all. Then secondly, give it to the poor. Like, you know, I could kind of go with maybe the sell it all, right? Okay, I'm gonna be following Jesus here. I don't know where this might, take me. I want to travel light. So I'll sell it. I'll minimize. I'll put it in the bank account because if this doesn't all work out, I can come back. I can buy all my stuff again. So if Jesus was just like, sell it all, like, okay, great. I could sell it, put it in an IRA and I'm good to go. But no, Jesus is like, you need to sell it. And then you need to detach yourself permanently from it. Go give it all away. Now, since the rich young ruler refused to obey, 
He refused to let go what was in his hands. For, Mark tells us he had many possessions. Jesus' command here, it brilliantly illustrates the real essence of this man's problem. The essence of this man's problem, understand, it wasn't his wealth. It wasn't his possessions. The man's problem, his biggest error, the real heart, is that he had an idol. His sin was idolatry. In his book, and I would recommend it, you, you, you look it up, buy it on Amazon, read it. But in his book, Counterfeit Gods, written by Timothy Keller, he makes this statement. He says, a counterfeit God, an idol, is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Idolatry then is not just a failure to obey God, it's a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. Let me give you a real simple definition for an idol. It's anything, anything, given a preeminent position in your life over Jesus. Now on the surface, people, people will say, and it's easy to understand that the man's idol was his wealth that it was his great possessions. And I can understand that. No, no doubt, the man's possessions took a preeminent position in his life over Jesus. But you should note that the issue goes much deeper than money. Wealth. And this culture, and the Jewish culture of the first century, wealth, money, great possessions, were all an indicator of God's blessing. It was all an indicator of God validating your faith and your moralness. The more money you had, the more wealth that you had, the more society looked at you and say, man, God is pleased with that man. His possessions had come to represent God's approval. So Jesus tells the man to get rid of his money. Not because money was his issue. The issue was what the money represented, which was what? His own righteousness. The man's idol, it wasn't money. The man's idol was himself and his self-righteousness. In his treatise concerning good works, Martin Luther makes an interesting correlation between the law's forbiddance of idolatry and the New Testament doctrine of justification by faith. Let me read you a section of what Martin Luther says. Failing to believe that God accepts us fully in Christ and to look for something else for our salvation is in and of itself a failure to keep the first commandment, namely having no other gods before him. To try to earn your salvation through works righteousness is breaking the first commandment. We cannot truly keep any of the other laws unless we keep the first law against idolatry and works righteousness. He continues, thus beneath any particular sin is this sin of rejecting Christ's salvation and indulging in self-salvation. In other words, we never break the other commandments without first breaking the law against idolatry. If we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us and is pleased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please him through 
through and after our works, then it is all pure deception. Outwardly honoring God, but inwardly, and this is the key, setting up self as a false savior. Now to illustrate this concept and how it applies to the rich young ruler, we need to first understand how the development of a counterfeit God occurs. Like how do we end up with idols? How do we end up with counterfeit gods? And I think there's four stages to the process. First, as with most of our spiritual conditions, spiritual problems, we get so consumed by the temporary. We get so fixated on life around us that we lose sight of eternity, right? I mean, with the rich young ruler, sad to say, he was so focused on what he had today that he forgot of what he could have in eternity. Let go of your possessions why? and you'll have treasure in heaven. He got so fixated on the temporal, he lost sight of the eternal. But secondly, since at this point, your life becomes all about today, the present, you create for yourself. And many times it's not intentional, it's accidental, but it still happens. Because you've lost sight of eternity and, and are only looking at the here and now, you'll create for yourself what I would define or describe as a self-defined hell. Let me explain this. Hell. Hell becomes for you, because you're not looking at eternity, you're only looking at the here and now. Hell becomes the one thing in this life you are wanting to avoid at all cost. Like you define hell as being poor. I want, the, the last thing I want, like the worst case scenario is for me to be poor. For some of us, our self-defined hell is being lonely. We don't wanna be alone. We hate being alone. We don't want loneliness. For some of us, it's being fat. Like that's just the worst. I wanna do anything and everything I can to not be fat to live as long and as healthy as possible for some, it's being single. I know for some of you, you're like, I'm in my own self-described, self-defined hell because I'm looking for a significant other. I just want to get married, man. Being single, it's the pits. You define hell as the one thing in life you're wanting to avoid the most. Some of us, it's being insignificant. Sometimes it's being bored. But then this is what happens. We all have a natural fear of hell, whether it's the literal hell or our self-defined hell. And because we all have a natural fear of hell, we want to avoid it at all costs, we end up doing this. We will search for a functional savior that can save me from my self-defined hell. If hell is being poor, your savior becomes your job and making money climbing the ladder of success. If hell is being lonely, your savior becomes a group of friends. Maybe identifying with a social scene. <laughs> Sometimes your pet keeps you from being lonely. It's your savior. If hell is being fat, your savior becomes the gym, a diet, a healthy lifestyle. If hell's being single, your savior becomes a spouse or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend. If hell is being insignificant, your savior will become a cause, a political party, a nonprofit, 
some kind of a cause, political, social, if hell is being bored, what's the savior of your boredom? It's a hobby. It's golf, tennis, your, your fishing, your sports team, a video game. Now here's the deal. Once you have defined hell and you found your savior, this functional savior, you know what you do? You will worship your savior. You will make sacrifices. You will dedicate time. You will invest energy. You will, you'll, you'll allocate resources to that person or that thing because it's your savior saving you from hell. You'll worship your job. It's most important. It's preeminent. A group of friends, an exercise routine, a sig significant other, a cause, a recreation. You begin to worship your savior because it's saving you from your hell, all because you've lost sight of what? Eternity. Now, now here's the deal. For the rich young ruler, note, his self-defined hell was not off. It wasn't off. This was not his problem. He correctly viewed hell as the horrifying alternative to eternal life. He did not want to miss out on eternal life. It's what he wanted to avoid. So he defined hell correctly, but here's the problem. His problem was what his functional savior was. And his moralism and the wealth that represented it, the rich young ruler had come to view himself and his ability to be righteous as the key to escaping hell. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What, I'm, I'm me, I'm the savior. What must I do? Tell me what to do, I'll do it. And Jesus rattles off some commandments and the man believed he was doing it. He says, all these things I've kept from my youth. And yet Jesus's commands here, these two instructions were meant to tear down his idolatry. Sell whatever you have. And the man refused. He had affirmed that Jesus was good, affirmed that Jesus was God. God gave him a direct order, a command, and he wouldn't do it, revealing his idolatry breaking the entire first half of the commandments and then give all that you have to the poor. You know, Jesus listed out a set of commands that dealt with our horizontal interactions, right? Don't murder, no adultery, dealing with some things regarding how we interact with one another. And then Jesus kind of gives him the ultimate command. Like, hey, if you really care for people, then it should be easy, right? For you to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. But he couldn't do it, right? Revealing what? He really didn't love people as much as he claimed he did. He didn't really care as much, meaning he did what? He broke the second half of the commandments. Like the man, in two commands, he, he broke everything. And what was happening? What was the point? Jesus was revealing that the man's self-righteousness was a facade and his savior himself was tragically inadequate to save him from hell. Understand, the whole point of the dialogue is for Jesus to get this man to reach this conclusion. I can't do that. I can't. I can't. If that's what I have to do for eternal life, I, I'm, I'm damned. I'm, I'm lost. I can't do it. I can't be good enough. I can't save myself. I'm a bad savior. 
Jesus wanted the man to reach this conclusion. I need a savior. I can't save myself. Now, you should know another thing concerning idols. Because everyone serves someone, it is an inescapable reality that an idol, an idol in our lives, whether it's yourself or something else, whatever is taking preeminent position over Jesus, whatever if Jesus is asking you to let go of it that you couldn't because you felt like your whole life would fall apart and why? Because you would be in your hell. An idol can't be removed. An idol, it must be replaced. This is why Jesus, this is why Jesus invites the man. After tearing down the man's idolatry himself, Jesus invites him to do what? Come take up your cross and follow me, knowing that you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus tears down his idolatry and he offers a replacement. Instead of yourself, why don't I sit on the throne? You know, sometimes we have idols. I say sometimes, all the time, we have idols. And we look at these idols and we're like, okay, I gotta get rid of that. But here's the problem. If you try to uproot an idol on your own, it'll either slowly grow back stronger than it was before, taking a more preeminent position, or it will find itself supplanted by just another idol. Sometimes if our idol is A and we work really hard for, for A to go away, it'll either be replaced by a stronger A or just a different B. We always serve someone. So Jesus invites us, if you want to get rid of the idol, invite me to sit on the throne. That in Jesus taking the throne of our lives, there is no room for any other. There's an Old Testament story that I think illustrates this accurately. David is at the end of his life. He's an old, frail man. And now his sons begin jockeying for the throne. And the oldest son, Adonijah, decides he's going to be king. And he gets some of the mighty men, some of the counselors. He just declares himself king was riding through the town. People start chanting that he's king. Well, David had promised Bathsheba that Solomon would be king. And so Bathsheba comes to David and says, Adonijah has assumed the throne, but you've promised it to Solomon. And David does something interesting. You know how David removes Adonijah? He doesn't fight him. He doesn't go to war with him. There's no violence. There's no self-imposed will. David simply removes Anjaya from the throne in one, swell, in one swift swoop by enthroning Solomon because he was still king. This son is claiming to be king. The easiest way to get him off the throne is to enthrone Solomon. So he has Solomon comes in, he prays, he hands him the scepter. Trumpets cry out from the palace, Adonijah starts to freak out. Why? Because the king has just anointed someone else. It's been said, and this is a quote that I carry with me always, that self cannot dethrone self, 
Why? Because it would wear the victor's crown. If you have an idol in your life, you can't get rid of that idol. If you do, it'll just be filled by something else. If you wanna get rid of idolatry in your life, there's one way and only one way. It's to come to Jesus and invite him to sit on the throne. Jesus, may you be preeminent because here's the deal, our functional saviors, they never really work for our own self to find hell and they don't save us from the actual one. We need Jesus and him alone. But sadly, the man was sad at this word. He went away for he had great possessions. Jesus recognized, I think, the sincerity of the man's quest but he also knew that the man had not reached the place of brokenness. It's interesting that this is the only man, the only instance in the gospel records of an individual coming to Jesus with sincerity, interacting with Jesus personally, but then tragically leaving without any work done in his life. Or so it would appear. Now there, there's no way that I can say that this is, is biblical. I can't say that it's a theory that I think has some actuality historically. I'm gonna run an idea by you. That we later are reintroduced to the rich young ruler. That this was not the last occasion that Jesus interacted with this man. This man came running to Jesus and then he left. But there would be another day that I think Jesus stepped into this man's life and re-engaged the dialogue. Once again, I can't say it with certainty. It's only a theory. But I think the rich young ruler, what's occurring here is Jesus sowing seeds knowing that this was important for the disciples and everyone present to hear in context to the sermon he had just given about, about receiving and not earning, right? Knowing that this man would leave and that this man would be resistant and hardened, not just to what Jesus is saying about works and zeal and religion, but would be hardened towards Jesus and those that would follow. I think this man would later be known as the Apostle Paul. You place the timing together and you connect the dots. I think you can build an accurate case that this was indeed Paul, which isn't it fascinating. If it is the case, two things. One, Jesus was not done with him. And sometimes we see people leave upset and hardened and we can get bummed out. I know you can. You see a child, a wayward childly. Jesus is not done working. But note that the lesson, really the essence of this lesson, if it is Paul, it explains why so much of his writing is geared towards what? Salvation by faith and not by works because he knew it personally. He had resisted it and rejected it until Jesus knocked him on his butt, which means, my second point, if you're running from Jesus, 
don't be surprised if Jesus knocks you on your butt. Why? Because he loves you. And because of those two words, loved him, something that stood out to Peter. You know, Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He speaks to him like he knows him, doesn't he? Like they've interacted before. This morning, if you have an idol, if you're guilty of idolatry and there's a conviction in your heart, I encourage you, I exhort you to come running to Jesus and to fall on your knees and to invite him to take control, to sit on the throne, knowing that that's the only way that you can supplant yourself. We only worship one of two things. We either worship the creator or we worship creation. Worship the creator. So Father, we thank you for your word.